Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. It's Friday, December 3rd, 2021. Did you know that you are supposed to, as a Christian, love and serve other people? Of course you do, right? If you are listening to this podcast, I am pretty sure that you know you are called as a Christian to love and serve other people. Uh, What we're going to see today that God calls us to serve each other is going to surprise a grand total of, wait for it, zero people. The question we want to really dig into today, though, is how do we do that? And both from that primary passage and from some others, we're going to get some help as we think about that. So let's go to John chapter 13, and we'll look at verses 1 through 20. And these tell a familiar story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But what we want to do is look at some things that will help us understand how we do this and what this should look like and what our motives should be and help us get past the surface of just, you know, being reminded that we are called to love and serve one another. And early on in the passage, we are reminded really of how Jesus did this. It says at the beginning here in verse one, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, likely many of you have heard explanations of just how demeaning this was really to Jesus, how the task of foot washing was reserved for the lowest of the low slaves, where Jesus here, he is the teacher, he is the leader, yet he is the one taking charge here and taking on the lowest task available for himself. Now, again, how does he do that? And we see a lot of explanation there in verse three, where it says, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Uh, Really, there's a security that Jesus has in his relationship with the father. There's a confidence that he has that God is going to take care of him that really frees him up to then love and serve others. And again, you need to be reminded that Jesus knows he is about to be betrayed by one of the people that he is going to wash their feet. Um, He's going to be denied by another, and he's going to be abandoned by the rest. Yet he loves them to the end. What? How in the world can that be possible? Well, it's because he's really not looking at them. He's not looking at what he can get from them. He knows what he is going to get from God. And that is what frees him to not focus on himself. 
And as you think about your relationships, you need to realize the truth of that for yourself. You will not love like Jesus loved. You will not serve like Jesus served if you are focused on what you are going to get in return from those people. Or if you are asking yourselves, what will they do for you. You will serve and you will love like Jesus did when you are confident in the love of the Father. When you are confident that God has got you right now and God has got you in the future and you have everything that you need in him. So you don't need to worry about yourself. You don't need to focus on yourself. You can serve others. And we get a little more of the mindset. There's this little interlude of um, Jesus talking to Peter. And I think there's rightly some symbolism in there. Just reminded if we are washed um, in Christ, we don't need a bath again, right? And I think some of that really referring to this idea of cleansing that comes through uh, the gospel and through the work of Jesus Christ. But then it kind of returns to this just really basic idea, I think, of serving each other. As Jesus talks to them and starts to explain what he did in verse 12, and he says, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so Jesus affirms even, hey, I am teacher and Lord, but I have washed your feet. And again, I think when he's saying you need to do the same thing, I don't think it's a literal call that, hey, we need to add foot washing as a church ceremony. Um, And I don't think it's referring to our responsibility to cleanse others from their sin. We can't do that. I think it's simply a call to serve one another. And it's a good reminder that the Christian life is not about status. It is not about title. It is not about position. It's really about serving. And even as you think about the context of your local church, you should be thinking, I want to serve and I'm not going to serve in order to get a position and I'm not going to use a position as an excuse not to serve. I want to serve others. That should be the heart of all of us. And Jesus reminds us at the end with that punchline, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So I know you know you're supposed to love and serve others. Are you doing it? Think through really just the people in your life. Who's at your home? Who do you spend most of your day with just through your calling or your occupation? What about your church community? What about those around you? Are you loving and serving them? It's not enough to know that you're supposed to. God wants you to do it. But also, you've been not just reminded of that. I hope you've been equipped from this passage with a little bit of how and what your mindset should be as you consider those things. Now, as we consider where Jesus got this confidence, part of it was he had a confidence for the future. He knew where he was going. And we're going to look at some passages today that also give us a taste of where we are headed and what's in store. There are two passages that, while they're kind of speaking to some specific and I believe uh, literal things, uh, they, they give us a taste of what is in store for the people of God in the future. And the first example that we are going to see is Ezekiel chapter chapters 46 through 48. 
And as we look at these chapters, we see an incredible scene uh, really in verses or chapters 47 and 48. It shows this picture of water flowing out from the temple. And remember, the temple is kind of on a, a hill there, a mountain in Jerusalem. So kind of from an elevated place and Jerusalem itself is elevated kind of on this central ridge of, of mountains kind of that goes runs straight north and south throughout the land of Israel. But now there's this stream that comes from below the threshold of the temple. And the farther out it goes, the the deeper it gets uh, to where it's a, a river you can't stand in, you can't pass through. And, and then it flows all the way into what it calls the Arabah and enters the sea and the water becomes fresh. Well, if you're familiar at all with Israel, one of the bodies of water there is what we call the Dead Sea. And it's the Dead Sea because, well, it's it's dead and, and the water is not fresh. It is a salt water at this point, because it is the lowest spot on earth. So all the water that flows into it, it's not flowing out because there's nowhere lower for the water to go. So over time, it has become salty water so much so that the famous thing that people do there in the Dead Sea is you go and you float because when you, you know, put your body into the Dead Sea, it just naturally floats. It's like you're sitting in an inner tube. There's just no inner tube. The consistency of the water has changed. And it's a dead place to a lot of degrees. There's not fish swimming in that water. You can't drink that water. And even around the Dead Sea, it's a pretty barren place with a couple exceptions. Uh, But now it's described as something that's going to be different. There's going to be fish and fishermen are going to spread their nets on these places. And again, some of the details, even the cities and the places where they will be spreading their nets, again, lead me to believe this is really going to happen. This isn't just a, a picture. This isn't just a parable. This is really something that is going to happen. And it mentions even En Gedi. That's one of the places where actually water does flow into the Dead Sea. And it's kind of a, an oasis in the midst of a desert. And now we picture that whole region becoming an oasis, a whole area becoming a place that's just bursting with life. And it gives us a a sense of what this, what, what the world is going to be like when Jesus returns. And it even talks about trees growing on the banks of this river. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing, right? What a beautiful picture of what is coming. And so as we think about loving and serving each other, we can be reminded, man, look what's in store. Look, look, that's just a little taste of what's the future holds as Jesus returns and makes things right. And notice at the very end, the last words of the book of Ezekiel, uh, talks about the circumference of the city. And then it says, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. That's the future. The Lord is there. There, That should encourage us and free us to love others. The other taste of the future that we get is in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, where again, it talks about uh, really, it's coming off this conversation of these 144,000 witnesses. But then it describes a great multitude from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they cry out, blessing and glory and wisdom, or or this is then the... uh, Everybody's falling on their faces. The angels are crying out, blessing and honor 
and blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And it describes this great multitude as these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And then it describes them as being before the throne of God and serving him day and night. And then listen to these words again, a taste of what is coming. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Another picture even of God dwelling with his people in these springs of living water, again, another taste of the future. And as we think through what eternity has in store for believers, that should encourage our hearts and just kind of free us from focusing on ourselves, focusing on right here, right now to know, hey, this is what's in store for us. That should encourage us to love others. And it should encourage us when we are really struggling and when we are distraught. And that's what we see in Psalm 137 as we look at our final passage for today. And here this is, in a lot of ways, a lament, right? These people are saying, how can we praise God right now? It says, by the waters of Babylon. So there you get the picture of exile. There we sat down and wept when we remember Zion. You know, and they're saying, how can we sing? They're saying, sing us songs, but how can we sing? We're remembering Jerusalem. We're in mourning and we will not forget about where we came from. And even at the end, it calls out really for judgment on God's enemies. Well, as we deal with just life in a fallen world and we look at things and say, how can we sing when we look at what's going on in the world around us and we cry out for God's judgment, we can be encouraged knowing God's judgment will come. He will take care of things and his people will be blessed and get to experience the presence of God forever. So hopefully that encourages us when we are discouraged and distraught by what's going on in the world, but hopefully it also helps motivate us to love and to serve other people. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.